Welcome to Sacrifice and Success, a podcast that looks at what we give up in order to thrive. I'm John Hegarty, chairman of Soho-based independent media agency, Electric Glue. In this series, I'm talking to people about what they have sacrificed to be where they are today. With me today is Sophie Birdwood, a London-based artist specializing in abstract and urban scapes, whose work has been frequently exhibited at the Royal College of Art. Sophie has a degenerative disease called retinitis pigmentosa, which slowly erodes her peripheral vision and is now reshaping the way she creates her paintings. I'm sitting here with wonderful Sophie Birdwood, uh, a London-based artist. I'm really pleased to be doing this because Sophie uh, used to work in advertising and worked in an agency that I was part of called Saatchi and Saatchi. Uh, Sophie, so do you look back at that time and go, what was I doing and why was I doing it? Um, yes, I, 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 I do question it. Um, but actually, I sort of, I, I know why, you know, why I worked there. And one of the reasons was that um, I loved the interaction between my colleagues and myself. And I think that generally speaking, all the people I was working with were very intelligent. And there was a lot of humour. And I think that for example, I've painting's always been the big theme in my life. It's quite a solitary activity. And I I I think there was something very refreshing and very uplifting about being in an office environment that was fun actually. Um I would say the downside was that it was very stressful. That I think probably you know was a bit off-putting but at the same time yeah I'm very glad I did it and I learned a lot I learned a huge amount about the way people think work and I learned some skills there that I would never have learned had I not been part of the industry. I suppose that's one of the sacrifices you make uh, that stress that comes with what is actually, in many ways, I would argue, a very, very exciting job, an exciting industry. And I always say that it, whatever happens in life, it teaches you so many things that you can go on and do almost anything else, because advertising encompasses so much from you know strategic thinking, research, organisation, through to creativity. So did you study art very early on in your life? Um, barely, actually. I mean, I got an artistic father and artistic aunt so I was sort of very much exposed to painting a lot when I was growing up and I think that obviously has an impact and I I was sort of inspired I was very driven to paint and I sold my first painting when I was 17 and I've been painting and selling ever since and I, I I can't say, curiously enough, a lot of people say, oh, gosh, it must be terribly therapeutic. And actually, for me, it's not necessarily very th- therapeutic. Um, I have a sort of slightly obsessive temperament. And so often 
paintings aren't I, I'm not resolving them and I will paint and paint and paint till two in the morning and I will get fairly exhausted but there is a sort of determination there and a perfectionist streak which I don't really have in any other area of my life that's almost it's interesting that because somebody once said to me I'm cursed as a creative person because I constantly want to make it better and this is a kind of and at a moment you have to sacrifice something you have to go I've just got to let it go and at some point you know it's that great story to a painter is when do you know when the painting's finished yeah and the answer often is I don't yes absolutely I completely concur with that um I I think that yes I mean I have occasionally overpainted um till the picture's dead um but I very, very rarely discard a painting and I will keep bashing away until I get it right. And what's also very curious about it is that sometimes um, I'll paint a picture, it'll take me a day and I'll think, I've got it. And then I'll paint another one and it'll take me two months. (laughs) <laughs> and um, I'll be tearing my hair out and driving everybody mad in my house and neglecting, neglecting things, neglecting, oh, I don't know, boring old admin and things like that. But nevertheless, sort of as soon as I've resolved that picture, I then had to pay, play a, you know, a huge amount of catch up. The good thing is that when I'm when I am painting, I am in what they call the flow so I am totally absorbed and, you know, a bomb could go off in my studio and I'd barely notice. Um, I think one of the reasons why I also drive everybody crazy is because I drip paint all over the house and that, again, is symptomatic of um when I'm not getting a painting right. So so the whole house is an artwork. Well I'm afraid words. I'm afraid it is. <laughs> Very Jackson Pollock there. It is a bit well not quite that bad, but it yeah. I mean you can see dribbles on the wall and I love it. The one set of curtains coming out of my studio is just I mean they're completely covered in paint and I used to think, well there's no point in getting new curtains because they'll just get covered in paint again. Mm. And I've ruined Goodness knows how many pairs of trousers and tops and all the rest of it. There's a wonderful photograph of L.S. Lowry and he's sitting on a chair in a suit uh, because he mostly wore suits. But the suit is splattered with paint. Yeah. And I always imagine in my mind him going home to his wife (laughs) and being given hell for painting in his special Sunday suit. And it's a brilliant picture. But going back just a moment, I'm fascinated with you as an artist because what what do you decide you're going to be a landscape artist you a portrait artist you're going to be because you're essentially landscapes mm. um and, and abstract yeah you see that i funny enough i think this is where i've made a big mistake actually because it's a hybrid and the majority of very successful painters i'm aware of very much stick to one particular genre, one particular subject matter. And I don't. Um, And I do a bit of abstract, a bit of landscape, quite a lot of architecture. I also mix mediums. I sort of paint in acrylic. I sometimes do watercolours. 
I mean, the only thing I would say, though, as a sort of general consensus, is that people do actually somehow recognise that all these different paintings are painted by the same person. So there's obviously some underpinning there that, you know, means there's some continuity. But, I mean, realistically, I suppose if I stuck to landscape painting, for example, I would probably be better known. But it's interesting, actually, because I, in in looking at your work, um, I think I love the landscapes, but actually I think I was looking at your abstracts and I almost said to myself, they're almost abstract landscapes. Mm. They, they may be started as a landscape and you just abstracted it. And I thought they were beautiful. Thank you, John. Thank you. I mean, one of the reasons why my work is half decent is because, like everything in life, if you really work hard, you know, you do get payback. And... Nobody could ever accuse me of being a lazy painter. Um, But as I said, going back to the sort of therapeutic bit, well, the quick answer to that is no, because actually I find painting very difficult. Mm. And I probably set myself quite high standards, so... Always disappointed. um, Not always, um, but just to put it in perspective, I mean probably throughout my whole painting career there have been about five paintings that I haven't actually wanted to sell because I thought there was something rather special and unique about them but actually the rest of them I'm I mean I'm not saying that sort of you know consequently rather mediocre but I'm okay about selling them you know they say you have to sacrifice your babies don't you yeah now Here's the bombshell. Sophie is going blind. She has a very rare disease. It's called retinitis pigmentosa. I think I pronounced that correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a degenerative disease. She's um, has run through the family. And that means her peripheral vision is going. And so she has to focus more and more on her central vision. And eventually she won't be able to see. And so Sophie is continuing painting, but is also really amazingly, I think, positive about her work, which I think is incredible, despite this enormous sacrifice that she is going to have to go through. Sophie, just talk a little bit about that and your mm. feelings around it. Yes, I mean, I um, I was first, I'm nearly 57 now, I was first diagnosed with um, RP about over 20 years ago and initially really the only thing that I had to sacrifice well quite a big thing was driving but actually my vision I mean comparatively good to what it is now and from a day-to-day point of view it didn't really affect me very much what has happened in the intervening years is that yes I have lost all my peripheral vision And what happens with this condition is that you lose your rods first. And your rods you use to see at night and in low light. And so consequently, if I go out at night, I'm pretty much blind. And I always have to take a white stick. But my central vision is still intact. And so it means that in good light, when I'm in my studio, I can see 
what I'm painting in front of me, although it's now getting to the stage where I can really only see segments of it. And so in order to see a whole composition and to, to make sure that I've got the composition right, I will have to remove the painting from the studio and put it in a bigger room and stand right back from it very tentatively. I have experimented with a couple of blindfold paintings, um, which I didn't think were great, but you've got to start somewhere. Um, I recognise as well that by, you know, when I was doing these, I it was very much a collaborative exercise because being blind, obviously you can't see colours. And so I needed some help with uh, somebody who said, you know, if I said, look, I want bright blue or yellow or whatever. So they were helping you so saying they, this is the blue. Yeah, blue. exactly. And then I used also, in terms of marking out shapes, I used drawing pins. Um, so I could feel where I put a square or sort of semicircle or something like that. I know that actually sort of very detailed work is pretty impossible. And so um, that's going to really affect your painting. Obviously, you can see how it's changing and what it's going to do. Do you have a, a view of how that's going to be into the future? Well, uh, yes. I mean, I every year... Painting becomes more challenging uh, with the degeneration in sight. And I think, in a sense, I'm sort of banking on the worst-case scenario, which is that science will not quite get there in time to salvage my sight. Now, I'm hoping I could be wrong about that because they're making pretty significant advances in gene therapy, for example, and they've done phase one, phase two clinical trials. So first of all, safety, second, efficacy. And so in terms of proof of principle, they know that they're onto something and they, you know, there's a boring scientific word called CRISPR, which is very uh, clever because what they can do, if you've got a faulty gene, they can snip out the faulty gene and just leave you with the good genes. And so that's offering, in a sense, some hope. Yes. Have you thought about moving to sculpture where you could feel yes, I, and I, use your, those yeah. senses? I mean, everybody always says that. Um, the problem I have is that sculpture's never done it for me, um, which is a real shame. Not inspired by it? Just not inspired by it, no. I love paint, actually, and I love using paint quite thickly. I think also, I, I mean, I find as well, if I manage to crack a landscape or an abstract with quite a loose technique, I find that more gratifying than one that's mm. sort of very tight. So it's that freedom that it gives yes. you. It's interesting, that thing about paint, because I, I went to um, Hornsey Art School and I can remember walking in there for the first time for my interview and the smell of oil paint. And to this day, if I smell oil paint, I'm walking in to that interview at Hornsey Art School. Yeah. And it, it, it stays with you. So I completely understand that. There is, it's interesting, isn't it, about the sort of the smell of something as well as the action of something. Of course. And the, the, it, it's part of the process of enjoying it. Going back to your 
painting. So here we are, sight is reducing up. But by the way, I just went to see the Jean de Buffet um, exhibition yeah. at the Barbican. Yeah. By the way, he had lots of styles. He went through lots of different uh, moments in, in, in his yeah. um, in his career. But he's got one fantastic sort of huge painting, which is all done in sections. And he's put all the sections together. So he did panels and then oh, he put it all together. Oh, interesting. So it, I love that sense of, it's almost like a comic book. You know, a comic does a little drawing, then you yeah, put another yeah, drawing yeah, next yeah. to it. And it had that sense to it. So that maybe with this idea that you've got to do things in sections begins to really infect your work much more. And it drives kind of what you're going to do. Well, I think one of the ways I can see through this, excuse the pun, is that actually I would be interested in in sort of using different textures. So putting canvas on canvas and then maybe a bit of plastic and then painting bits in between. So again, much more tactile, sort of more, maybe a bit more collagey. That would be, to my mind, that would be just fantastic to go and... Mm see that and to suddenly see a body of work done by somebody who's who's recalling things from their memory it's well, not affected by yeah today uh, it's affected by what happened yesterday your, some of it will be vis- today visual memory yeah i mean there's an artist actually who's an inspiration to me called soggy man and he's actually got an exhibition on at the moment with the gallery called Cadogan contemporary and his story was very interesting. He'd always had sight problems. And then, I think it was about 10 years ago, he went completely blind. And the gallery sort of thought, OK, game's up. You know, that's the end of him. Um, but actually, he carried on painting when he was completely blind. And he had several one-man shows and did incredibly well. Brilliant, yeah. And I just sort of think, well, anything's possible. It is thought, isn't it, that Monet's water lilies are somewhat influenced by the fact that he might have had cataracts. Yeah, well, they, they're they definitely more abstract than pre- his previous work. Um, and so you can see that, inf- yeah. you know, he's coming from memory and then it's affecting the painting. Yes. So yeah. uh, it's interesting, it's how that technique informs creativity, doesn't it? It's sort of... Yes, and I I would hope that the simple fact that I have been painting for this long would stand me in good stead in terms of still remembering how to apply paint. I mean, I'm a very messy painter, actually. And it's quite interesting because if you look into my studio, you'd think, how on earth can she produce works that are actually not that messy? But, you know, I will. I get terribly impatient, so I'll be sort of mixing three different colours on the same brush and... You know, <laughs> so I <laughs> well, mean, you know, I don't help myself, but um, we've look at Francis. Those pictures of Francis Bacon's studio and and um, uh, Lucian Freud's. Yes, I mean, they were yes. completely. You wondered Tip. how anybody worked in yep. in them at all, but they were brilliant places where they could go and be mm. who and what they wanted to mm. be. And mm. I, I love that sense of the, and, and you're seeing the artist in in their environment. Yeah, and so being neat and tidy doesn't necessarily. Pertained and mm. correlate to great mm. creativity. Mm. So I, I love that sense of um, chaos around mm. creativity, which is 
something that's very powerful. If it's predictable, then it's going to be rather boring. Mm. So you do you look into the future or do you just go, I'm each day is another day. I'm not going to think more than that. Well, I I look into the future in terms of planning. For example, I said to my husband actually quite recently, look, if we're going to move house, we've got to do it in the next six months because we've been there for 23 years in the same house. And so I am familiar with all the stairs and corridors and everything. And... I mean, assuming there isn't a treatment, but it won't be any good if he says to me in five years' time, oh, well, actually, we're going to move house now because I would find it completely disorientating. It would take me a long time to learn, you know, how to navigate my way around the house or flat or whatever. I'd say there's planning involved. So it's long-term, short-term. It's Yeah, it's, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm not... Uh, I'm quite philosophical, actually, about my sight loss. I mean, very, very occasionally I have sort of days where I feel a bit down about it, but it's not... You strike me, you know, Sophie, if I can cut across you there, and I'm sitting opposite you and I'm talking to you about painting, a visual medium, I'm talking about the appreciation of things like that, and you're incredibly, in my view, positive very philosophical, not bitter. In a way, I've always said cynicism is the death of creativity Mm. and an artist has to remain positive. You have to believe Mm. what you're doing is going to be great. You have to believe it's going to change the world. And here you are, your sight's going, and yet you talk so beautifully about your work and what you're doing and why you're doing it. There's no bitterness in your voice. No, I'm not bitter, actually. Not why me, you know, you sort of get that why me. Well, no, but I mean, kind of perversely, um, we'll touch on this, not going to necessarily any any great depths, but I am a long-term, they call me a chronic sufferer of depression. So the last 25 years, I have been plagued by it. And I've been through some pretty awful depressive episodes where I've been I've ceased to be able to function actually and the feelings that come with that are so dreadful that actually I mean without minimizing it losing my sight is a piece of cake I mean it's not a piece of cake but in a in a weird sort of way having been through what I've been through curiously of course people always assume that I'm depressed because I'm losing my sight But strangely enough, they're not connected Mm. because my depression is neurochemical. So it's unfortunately, it's not one of those things you can sort of talk your way out of. And I think if I hadn't had that, maybe I would be more cynical Mm. about losing my sight. You're listening to Sacrifice and Success, a podcast brought to you by independent media agency, Electric glue. You know, you think about it and what you've done is you've said, well, actually, I've realised there is something even worse than this and I've been through it and I know how bad that is. It makes losing my sight easier to cope with. Yes. What brought you out of it or what what helped you get out of that depression? Is there anything that you want to say about that? Well, I mean, I'm happy to say I've been medicated actually really for the last 25 years. 
you know, that that has obviously made a difference. And I am one of those people who absolutely has had to be medicated. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. I, I mean, there are, there's a lot, you know, a lot of new research actually out. I mean, funny enough, somebody called Edward Bullmore, um, who's the head of psychiatry at Cambridge, you know, he's come up with some theory which to me really resonates, which is about the connection between inflammation and depression. And they've done studies on quite a lot of people. And I try and lead a life which is as anti-inflammatory as possible. When you say inflammatory, what do you mean by that? Well, it's basically if I'll give you an example. One of the bits of research they did, uh, which they, they, well, they stumbled on it, actually, was that people who'd never shown any signs of depression, who then developed very bad arthritis, became suicidal and they couldn't work it out. That was one piece of research. And there is definitely a correlation between if you eat masses of sugar, if you... Because sugar is the number one inflammatory substance, actually. Some people would say sugar is poison. Yeah, absolutely. And, and of course, so that includes booze, you know, all these different things. And actually exercise, yes, okay, it releases endorphins, but it is also anti-inflammatory. And one of the... Actually, I was going to come on to this, actually. One of the things that I do find helps is dancing. <laughs> wow. and, um Any particular music? Well, um, I'm afraid, don't ask me, crap music, okay? Sort of 70s, disco, whatever. And I teach dance. I had a ballet training when I was much younger. And dance is very much sort of part of my DNA. Again, there's quite new research out now to suggest that the combination of music and movement and coordination actually boosts your brain more than, let's say, running or going to the and there, gym. And there are those that say music is the greatest of all art forms. I think I would agree with that, actually. Mm. Mm. Um, but you found it therapeutic. You found it It released the endorphins. It, it induced a sense of, yeah. of, of release. But I think, you know... It, one of the sort of, I suppose, one of the slightly tedious things, but it's just that's one of those things, is that in order for me to stave depression away, you have to be very disciplined, actually. So whether it's all these different vitamin pills or the dancing or the meditating or, you know, you actually have to do it on a daily basis. Mm. And I mean, frankly, it's a, it's a surprise I have time to do anything else. <laughs> but don't they think, I remember when I was in art school, uh, we were always told if you're if you're not drawing every day, you're not getting better every day, uh, and that sense of having to do it all the time yes. was fundamentally important. Absolutely, and, um, and I suppose that's what you're saying about depression. You've got to work on it. You you do every day. You do. Can I just ask the professor at Cambridge what was his name again? Edward Bullmore. If people wanted to read about that, they can. He, he's yeah, published papers. He's, and, he's published a very good book called The Inflamed Mind. The Inflamed Mind. So yes. if you're out there. You're listening to this and you're concerned about that, then... And you only, have to, you only have to Google him. You'll get the lecture up as well that he gives. That's, that's fantastic. Yeah. So going back to... You know, it's interesting talking about your painting because, you know, when I looked at it, there's a, a, a fabulous artist called Ewan Uglo who I absolutely adore. Very British artist, actually. Mm. And I look at your work and I find it very British. And I don't know why, 
Mm. It's just something about the way we see things and the way we observe things. And as I say, I called your abstracts or abstract landscapes. It's fascinating when you work in advertising. What advertising does is it brand things. So it's easy for people to understand them. You know, I drink Coke. I don't drink a sugar carbonated water. And it makes it easy for me to understand it. And arts did that. It talked about pop art. It talked about the post-impressionist. It talked yeah. about abstracts. And I, I, I was looking at your work and thinking, I, I think Sophie is an, an abstract landscape painter. Yeah. And I wanted to almost say, to you, maybe we should develop a, a kind of an art movement around that. Well, I'm, I'm, I follow well, abstract landscapes. That's what well, I do. That, well, that would be very exciting. I suppose it's, again, rather curious. My life, I would say, sort of has been in sort of vignettes, really. Um, I mean, I've got four children. I've now got a granddaughter. Any of them painters? No, no, I'm afraid not. And I've all said, I, I can see what it does to the house. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no. I mean, Olivia, my oldest, who is a copywriter. She's a copywriter, isn't she? Um, she's actually, she is quite gifted. But I mean, she just doesn't have any time. No, nobody's pursuing an art, uh, a career in art. And frankly, actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't push any of them to either because we quite like some sort of um, fund managers and corporate financiers. <laughs> <laughs> you can help buy a gallery and you yeah, can exhibit whatever, your work you there. Yes, um, yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, I would say they're all creative, actually, thinking about it. Brilliant. Well, I think, you know, it's very interesting because people come to me and they say, you know, I'm thinking of getting into creative industries. I want to work in design or in advertising and my advice to all of them is get as close as you possibly can to having the idea if not having the idea because whatever's going to happen in life that's the one thing that won't be replaced by ai Absolutely. for however long we don't know yeah. you know there are those who believe everything is going to be replaced by ai right. even ourselves yeah. and i always say to them that get as close as you possibly can to having the idea and then you'll always have a job that's a very good piece of advice. Because also, I, I think I mentioned um, too, as I retrained, well, I trained actually as a psychotherapist. I have some patients who I see and and that's very interesting. And does that therapy help you? No, that therapy doesn't really help me as such, although I find it very stimulating. And, you know, I do a lot of background reading because I felt that my theory was getting a bit rusty. You know, currently I'm, reading a lot more about psychodynamic theory, sort of a bit of Freud, a bit of Melanie Klein and um, Carl Rogers, person-centred theory. And that's quite, some of it's quite mind-bending and I like that. And it's also, I think it makes the sessions that I have with my patients slash clients, they've never got the word right. I don't think either of them are uh, right, but there we go. I think it makes them more effective. So are you sacrificing that for your art, your painting? I wouldn't say so. I think part of the reason, obviously, why I did do it was a contingency if I lost my sight. Because you can be a therapist. I know a couple who are blind. And yes, it's obviously very useful to have the visual cues. Um, you can pick up quite a lot from them. But at the same time, it's your listening skills that are really critical. Hmm. And I mean, my painting is certainly 
I mean, I see my painting as my day job, really. And but, therapy is the um, well, <laughs> something I do to relax. N- no, um, <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. But I would say it augments my painting in a way. Um, and going back to what you were saying, actually, about being busy, you know, again, one of the things I've noticed over the years is that I have to be busy without being busy to the point of it being, you know, a very obvious escape but I really like being able to get up in the morning and think right okay I've got this I've got that you know I I like to have markers in the day funnily enough actually I don't like holidays holidays Mm -hmm. to me are an anathema the the idea of going abroad and lying on a beach um you know forget it but that's I mean I'm (laughs) I'm a bit strange (laughs) like that so lockdown's been fine well, it has actually, because I have been very busy. I think actually, fun enough, again, where the therapy comes in, which is useful, is of course there is interaction there. And it also forces me to focus on someone else. Mm. I can't sit there and think about if I'm feeling depressed today or mm. whatever, because actually I have to listen to every single word Well, a painting is a conversation between the artist and the viewer, isn't it? Yes, it is. Um, Um, You've said something and I've got to respond to it and then I look back into it and I get more from it. The more I look at a painting, the more I see. So would you say when you're painting, you're expressing yourself, you're expressing something you feel? I'm sure I do. I'm really not very good at articulating what... Curiously, actually, it was one, it was quite interesting. I did this whole series on our bathroom. I produced about 25 paintings, and some of them were huge. On your bathroom? Yeah, on our bathroom. (laughs) I love it. Why not? So I I had this exhibition, which was the bathroom. You know, some of them were like six foot by five foot and things like that. Um, I mean, not particularly commercial pictures. But what was so interesting about it was that I, the reason why I set off uh, on this journey was because I just, I was sort of in the bathroom one day and thinking, gosh, there's some really interesting shapes in here. There were some which were semi-abstracted and I did them, oh, I did an aerial view of the bath um, with water in it. And it, it was quite, it was quite eerie. Mm. And Well, water is the hardest thing to paint because it's nothing, if you see what I mean. Yeah. You see uh, through it. What I thought was very interesting was that there were all these people who came to see this exhibition and they started coming up with all sorts of theories about, you know, why I'd painted it and why I'd done this and why I'd done that. And all of it was a complete load of rubbish. You see, that's why I like pop art in a way because part of what pop art did was it took the everyday, the mundane. Yes. And it it looked at it and it blew it up yeah. and it put it on a canvas yeah. and sort of Warhol said a Campbell soup can can be interesting. Look at this. Exactly. And and I always thought that was fascinating. So I, I could is that did, you, was that catalogued that Yes it was, yeah. Period of work. So yeah. could somebody go and see it? Um Cadogan Contemporary may have some left, but it was a long time this ago. This is Cadogan Contemporary. Contemporary, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So tell me, you know, this is about sacrifice and I think you've talked very eloquently about how with depression that was a a bigger sacrifice 
But the fact that you're losing your sight is a phenomenal sacrifice and what that's going to do for your work. To me, I, I, I think you're going to be one of the most interesting artists to follow, to see how uh, you develop, how you go on painting. I, I love the fact that, you know, we talked about scale. Scale is always important yeah. in art. You know, mm. do you do a big painting? Do you do a small painting? Because you're trying to alter my perception of that image. And physically, you can do it by saying, I'm going to do it very big or yeah. I'm going to do it very small. Yeah. And, and you've talked about maybe you're going to get smaller uh, with your work. But you are certainly going to be an artist that people should look up and follow to see how this develops. I'd just like to ask, you know, one last thing. Is there anything you'd like to say to all those people out there struggling with some sacrifice that they're dealing with? Is there anything that you'd like to say to them? I suppose, yes. I, I suppose a piece of advice really is to try and live in the day, to live in the moment. Because actually, we all do need to embrace life because nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, when my mind starts wandering off to, oh, well, in five years' time, I won't be able to see anything and all the rest of it. Well, yeah, but I might get cancer next week. You know, I sorry, it's a really sort of morbid thing to say, but I mean, it's true. You know, there are disabilities and disabilities. And whilst losing my sight is awful it is lifestyle threatening rather than life threatening well that's an amazing thought to end on and and i just want to say to all those people listening you know go and look at sophie birdwood's paintings i think i love them i think they're brilliant and i can't wait to see how she develops and moves on sophie's instagram is birdwood underscored art so look it up uh, and uh, you'll see some fabulous work. Sophie, thanks um, for this. It's been wonderful. It's been uh, fantastic to sit opposite somebody who had to sacrifice so much, but stayed so positive. Thanks. Brilliant. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sacrifice and Success, a podcast brought to you by Electric Glue, an independent media agency that believes to succeed in the complex media landscape you need to sacrifice. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Next month, we'll be talking to Lawrence Delalio about the sacrifices he's made to be where he is today. Until then, goodbye and good luck. This podcast was created by Soho Radio Studios.